every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Dave Kellogg. Dave boasts an unparalleled career in marketing and business with decades of experience at each of the CEO, CMO, and independent director levels and a term as Senior Vice President GM of the $500 million service cloud business at Salesforce. He currently serves as Principal of Dave Kellogg Consulting and as an independent board member, angel investor, and industry-leading blogger focused on enterprise software startups. On this episode, Dave shares stories from his days in the trenches at Salesforce, the philosophies that have helped him succeed across more than 35 years in marketing, and the key skills he says every CMO must have. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Dave Kellogg, Principal at Dave Kellogg Consulting, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by special guest, Dave, how are you? I'm doing really well, Ian, how are you? We are excited to have you on the show. I can't wait. This is an exciting one for us. A little different from some of our other episodes as as you're not actively sitting in the trenches as a CMO, but you have been many times over and a, and a CEO many times over. So excited to chat with you about everything demand gen, everything marketing today. And so let's start off with, what was your first job in marketing? First marketing job was a competitive analyst. I was a tech support training and consulting guy. I was working out of a sales office. I got started to get dragged on sales calls. And uh, I said, hey, I want to I go work in marketing. So I, I called up the head of marketing and said, let, let me be a competitive analyst so I can kind of study us and our competition. And that was kind of my bridge from the technical world to the marketing world. And so flash forward to today, other than writing one of the absolute best, most popular blogs out there, which everybody should check out at kelblog.com. You probably already subscribe to it, but if you don't, go check it out. Other than your blog, what else are you working on? Sure. Well, I'm on the board of uh, four companies and I run my own consulting business. I'm probably advising, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen other companies. So I'm on four boards, advising half a dozen to a dozen companies informally. Uh, I do the odd consulting gig and I do the blog. So I'm, I'm staying pretty busy. Yeah, pretty busy, pretty busy indeed. I love the blog. It's so great. It's just just killer insights. And we'll get into some of that stuff here today. So you had a unreal tenure as CEO of Host Analytics, and then you shifted to starting uh, your own consulting practice. What was that kind of transition like from going from CEO to kind of running your own consulting business? You know, CEO, there's a lot of aspects of the CEO job I love. Uh, strategy, right? Kind of thinking up company strategy, e- even putting it into execution, measuring it, metrics. So metrics, strategy, positioning. I love all that stuff. 
there's also a lot of bad parts of being a CEO, which maybe CEO, CMOs should remember. You know, it can be a lonely job. It really is, right? Like you don't really have any peer group and you're kind of working for the board. and They're kind of your boss, but they're kind of not your boss. So um, to me, the ability to go into consulting basically meant two things for me. One, I can kind of get the best part of the CEO job, like work on the fun stuff with half a dozen companies rather than just one and jettison all the not fun stuff like, you know, performance reviews and compensation and equity refresh pool and HR issues and, you know, uh, all the, the less fun parts of the job. So to me, it was a chance to, to in some ways, I think, you know, sell my battle scars or rent my battle scars and be able to work on the parts of the job that I like best. One of which, of course, is marketing. So when you're advising, are you working with CMOs? Are you working with CEOs? And in your board roles, are you thinking about things from a marketing lens? Short answer is I think I may be the only consultant on earth who spends as much time with CFOs as CMOs. Uh, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's a pretty rare combination. <laughs> uh, I, I spend, I'd say most of my time with CEOs and then, then after that, CMO, and after that, CFO, or those are similar. Uh, ironically, I spend less time with the CRO, but I spend a lot of time with the head of sales ops uh, or the head of revenue ops, as it's called. So those are the primary people I work with. And I think people like me in a board role because I, I am kind of a utility infielder, right? Like, hey, you need help with marketing? I can do that. You need help with, with SaaS metrics? I can do that. You need help with strategy, board relations? You know, I can help with that. Do you find that there's a lack of marketing leadership on boards. I know that's one of the things that our our CMO pals joke around with behind the scenes is that a lot of boards don't really have the uh, the prowess in, in in marketing. Yeah, I would say that most, you know, most boards always want to have kind of one finance person, you know, to chair the audit committee and be the representative finance person on the board. And then often there's a operating guy or a gal as they'll say, so an operator but that operator typically comes from a sales background, right? It's rare that that operator is from a product background. It's even rarer that they're from a marketing background. So, so I would say, yes, our, our marketing colleagues do have a, a valid beef here that boards typically do not have people who are marketing savvy on them, uh, nor are they looking. There's kind of like no place at the table for the marketing board member. So that can be a real challenge for CMOs. I mean, isn't that crazy though? Like, it seems like it's something that, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just speaking from from bias, but it's like when you talk about some of the complex marketing things about like you're talking about with revenue operations, about when you're talking about the just how dynamic marketing has become, how digital marketing has become, and yet there's nobody on the boards that like truly understands the way that you're driving pipeline for the company. I feel like that's short-sighted. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and to add to your how much more marketing has become series, if I could, if I only got one word to fill that blank in, it would be accountable, <laughs> right? Marketing has become super accountable. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I don't think it's great. I, I, I like, here's the thing that mitigates it is that I believe what separates the sales leaders from those who stay as CROs to those who go on to become general managers or CEOs is actually an understanding of marketing. So, so to a certain extent, they, they didn't grow up in marketing, right? So they're not marketing people per se, but, but the great irony, especially for sales leaders who, who kind of specialize in not getting along with marketing, because <laughs> there are still some of those out there, um, 
for them, ironically, it's going to be the thing that hinders their career because the ones who move on, who become GMs and CEOs, actually do understand marketing. So I think you get, while the board doesn't necessarily have a chair reserved for someone who grew up in marketing, it typically does have a chair reserved for someone who's an operator, i.e. been a general manager or CEO. And usually those people, the successful ones at least, have an understanding of marketing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because it seems like it puts such an onus back onto the people in the company having a strong marketing prowess. You know, obviously you spent some important days at Salesforce, but if you look at, you know, the previous guest we've had on the show, Adam Blitzer is a GM and he has a marketing background and he has a fundamental understanding of marketing and marketing technology better than, than just about anybody on, on this planet. And he now has this, you know, robust capacity at Salesforce. Now, obviously Salesforce has many products for marketing, but but I think it's this idea that like, is there some sort of paradigm shift where marketers can become closer to the CEO or become CEOs of the future because they're so much closer to the number, to the pipeline, to the business, to revenue? Yeah, I, I think all the trends are moving in that direction. It was a relative rarity when I did it myself, right? I, I was CMO of a billion dollar company and really, I didn't start getting calls from recruiters for CEO jobs until we were about $500 million. Now that That's changed today, I'm sure. But at the time, it was pretty rare for people to say, hey, we want to hire a CMO to be CEO. And even then, it was seen as a liability. It was like, okay, you've got this liability that you've, you know, you've never run the revenue number, you've never been a general manager, you've never built the product. So I would tend to see companies where I either had domain expertise, like in business intelligence, or where the company itself sold the marketing. So when I did it, it was pretty uncommon. I think it's getting more common, to your point. And I think it's because, look, my, my whole theory was, I think it was the past professor of marketing at Harvard Business School, Theodore Levitt, who said marketing is the entire business seen from the point of view of the customer. And I always liked that definition. And I do think... I love that. Yeah, isn't it nice? And if you conceptualize yourself as a marketer in that way, if you conceptualize yourself as, as a marketer in that way it's going to tee you up for a great career because you do work with product, right? And you do work with sales and you will work with finance. So, and by the way, to our prior conversation, you're now pretty darn accountable. Like what do you mean? Like, you know, at business objects back in the day, you could argue that I didn't have a number that there's no way that any CMO today, you could ever accuse them of not having a number. Like they have a number, right? It's called pipeline or it's called sales or like, like they're very accountable for driving the business. So I think as a lot has changed and, and I think, you know, GMs and CEOs will increasingly come from a marketing background, particularly the marketers who want to define themselves in that holistic way. That's a great, great description. I hadn't heard that one before. That's going to have to go into uh, into our repertoire here on, on DGV. Uh -uh, good. Let's get to our next segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where... You can feel honest and trusted and open up that playbook. You've built a lot of playbooks in your day and we want to hear them. So do you have a particular philosophy for B2B marketing uh, or strategy that you would go into a role? Like if, if, if tomorrow you're the CMO of ABC Corp, um, what are you going into, uh, into that role thinking as a CMO? You know, very early in my career, uh, one of the VPs of the company made a t-shirt that said, code, sell, or get out of the way. <laughs> Relatively <laughs> offensive to us in marketing. But it reinforced what I now call the metaphor of an enterprise software company, at least, which is it really is a two-engine plane. Like as a board member, 
if I only got two employee-related numbers about a company, it would be the number of code-writing developers and the number of quota-carrying salespeople, right? It's a two-engine plane, right? We build stuff and we sell stuff and everybody else is here to help. Um, and some marketers don't like to think of themselves that way. I do. There, there's no shame in being the help, right? <laughs> like, it, like they need help. We hire marketing to drive efficiency in sales. And by the way, to help product build the right stuff so it's ultimately easier to sell. So I think you can be the help in very tactical ways, like going and generating leads, or you can be the help in very strategic ways, like saying, let's target this segment of customers and let's build a product for them and let's communicate this message and back that up with market research so we know it's going to work, et cetera. So, so when I say we're the help, it doesn't mean we're tactical, but it does mean we're, we're here to help. The, the, the other way to say it is if we only had a, you know, a, a two-person software company, we have one coder and, and one salesperson. Right? There'd be no marketing. We only hire marketing as we hit 10, 20 people where we say, gosh, it'd be nice to get some scale economies so the salesperson didn't have to go do the events and set the website up and you know all that early stage stuff. So my philosophy comes from that, which is basically make sales easier. My credo has been make sales easier. I didn't make it up. I, I heard it probably literally in like 1987, long, long ago. I was at an all-hands meeting. I had just taken that first job in marketing. And we had just fired the last CMO <laughs> and the new one showed up and said, why are we here? Uh, and we're all scratching our heads. And, and he says, we're, we're here to make sales easier, right? We're, that's why we're here and that's what we're going to do. And I, I loved it. I, it was very pithy, you know, really reductionist. And, and I built my career on it. And ironically, some of the, the biggest arguments I've had about that little phrase have been with sales leaders. And say, no, that's not what marketing's about. And I'm like, yeah, it is. That's why we're here. So, so that's my philosophy, and I practice it to the extent that it even surprises people sometimes. Because to me, the CMO should be kind of locked at the elbow with the CRO, right? They should answer each other's phones on the first ring, right? They should have a good personal relationship. They should be in line in meetings. One should take a bullet for the other. If one's getting shot out at a board meeting, the CMO should dive in front of the VP of sales uh, or vice versa. So to me, it's all line with sales, partner with sales to go hit the number. You hear a lot of this, you know, marketing has two customers, the actual customer and sales, right? Um, so sometimes sales wants things that the customer is not really looking for, right? The the never-ending treadmill of more. I need another use case. I need another thing. How do you kind of like blend those two things of focusing on what your customers want, what type of content your prospects and customers want, things like that, versus like what sales is asking for? Because it seems like you you need to also build what sales doesn't know they need yet. Sure. It, it's quite really, really true. Look, there's a, a great line from the old movie, The Miracle on 34th Street, where, where Santa Claus goes, some children wish for things they couldn't possibly use, like real locomotives or B-52s. <laughs> and uh and that's what it's a little bit in marketing. It's like, hey, I'm Santa Claus for sales. I, I'm going to give you, you know, I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you. But if you ask me for a locomotive, I'm not going to give you one, right? So, <laughs> so I'm not going to do everything you say because being the help doesn't mean being a gopher, right? Being the help means we are going to help make sales easier. And if you, and the other keyword I use to describe this is tough love, which was the name of some old teenage intervention program for troubled youth. Like we love you, but we're, we're going to be tough on you. Um, and, and I consider the, the sales relationship tough love. I'm here to help you. But if you ask me for something stupid, I'm going to tell you why it's stupid. And I'm going to explain to you why you, you don't really want that. 
And that's part of that peer relationship, right? That we are locked at the elbows. We are peers. We trust each other. So if the, if the CRO comes to me and says, I want X, I want, you know, 10 more use cases, I'm going to say, no, you don't. I, I know you think you do, and we can talk about it, but let me explain why we can give you those, but your salespeople aren't going to be able to support them. By the way, another really interesting way to help that relationship is a very close relationship to the salespeople to say, they don't work for me. They work for you. I think I get straighter scoop than you do. And 10 of them told me they hate that idea. So, so why don't you make sure that they're not agreeing with you just because you're the boss? Because I don't think your people actually want that. And maybe we can go find out. Let's do a town hall. Let's do a survey. But I know you think they want that. Maybe they don't. Right. So th- there's lots of ways you can help sales, even with understanding their own people by building a good relationship with them. So, so the, the, the key to that question is really what I just call tough love. Yes, I'm 100% aligned with sales. Sales is going to ask us to do things from time to time that are not good, that are not aligned with company strategy, that don't actually help make sales more productive. You know, look, where possible, run an experiment. I don't like saying no. Like I always say a key skill for any CMO is the ability to say no. Just don't say it too often, right? <laughs> and, and I believe both parts of that, right? You have to be able to say no. But if you become doctor, no, that doesn't work. So I think you have yes, no, and let's do an experiment. And that's the other way. If the argument doesn't work, like, are you sure you want to do this? Because it doesn't strike me as a great idea. And here's why. And if the CRO says, yes, I still want to do it. I say, great, let's run it as an experiment. Let's not do a global rollout. Let's run it in the Eastern region or run it in Belgium. Uh, Let's go try this idea and see what happens. Back in the day when I was in the army, I learned a very valuable lesson that uh, my battalion XO gave to me, which is like, Ian, you always uh, have the answers ready to go. And when I ask you for something, you say no, and you give me the reason why. And sometimes the boss just wants you to say, I'm on it. And then you can come back later and say, hey, here's the reason why we can't do that, but here's two other solutions. And I always feel like that's that's the way that marketers should approach when sales asks for something like that is just say like, I'm on it. I'm working on it. I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. And if the answer is no, come up with a solution of, of like why that is and something else that you can do. But I feel like that doctor and no thing is just so brutal to hear all the time over and over and over again. No, no, no. And it's, and it's very, when you're on the sales side and marketing keeps saying no to you and it's just freaking suffocating. Yeah, no, I, I've worked with, I mean, I, I honestly believe what I said, which, which is a key success factor for a CMO is the ability to say no, but don't say it too often because it is demoralizing for the other party and, and you just become a brick wall. And I've actually watched and worked with CMOs who got too good at saying no. <laughs> and so, so you really, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's an important skill, but it's not to be overused. And, and yeah, a lot of times, if it's, especially if it's not a big deal, yes, on it. Or yes, we'll run it as an experiment. Or, you know, let's just get it done. Like kind of choose your battles, try to say yes, pick your nose carefully. And when you're gonna say a no, try and give some options. And and, and look, in this in this day and age, experimentation and data is always an easy option. One of the key parts of the other side of that equation of getting getting other people to say yes to your marketing campaigns when they might be crazy or harebrained or whatnot is that you have to pitch everybody else. And our, our good buddy, Dan Darcy, who's the chief customer officer uh, now at Qualified, he gave us a story uh, uh, about you from your Salesforce days uh, that you you went in a meeting in front of the whole company with uh, 
with some crazy outfit on and did a mini skit introducing a product. Can you share what the heck he's talking about? Sure. Yeah, that that was crazy, actually. Um, so we were having uh, a top management or kind of retreat. Uh, at the time, the company was three billion dollars in revenue, so you know, top management was a, a conference room. You know, four or five hundred people. It was a, it was a big meeting. Uh, Might even been yeah, probably five hundred people. And, uh, and and I was a GM of the service cloud at the time. And the issue with these meetings is they can get a little boring and formulaic, right? Because everybody stands up and does their update for their product line. Um, and, and my boss and I, Alex Diane, a, a good friend, said, hey, why don't we try and sizzle this up a little bit to you know, try and be memorable, right? Because you, you want to be memorable as, as a marketeer. Um, so yeah, we went on stage in full costume. We, we had a customer who was a EA, the video game company, uh, and they had used our product during a product failure. So, so their, their call center was inundated with calls because the product failed um, and, and, and our self-service customer portal got them through it. And by the, the elasticity of the cloud got them through that. If they were running this on-premise, they, they would have run out of capacity. So they would have had the product fail, then the support center fail. So it was actually a very cool case study. So, I mean, part of this was we found the case study. And the second part was, yeah, we went on. Uh, well, people actually thought I was a real soldier because <laughs> <laughs> I was a new employee at the company. So people was like, who's the, the, the soldier? That was kind of weird. But I went up in full costume and we played some battle sequence from the, the game that had gone down, and we came out and did a kind of very militarized introduction of the product. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was memorable. People remembered it. Benioff loved it. And, uh, you know, we got the message across, which is, to me, and that's the important part about these things, because I, I, I have done that and other stunts, but I always want the stunt to communicate the message. Uh, and that message is all about elasticity of the cloud. We saved them because when that game went down, and hundreds of thousands of users were hitting the call support, the call center. They, they survived that because the cloud was elastic and our data center can handle that load. And, and so, to, so to me, because sometimes marketers forget and they do the stunt without the message, that is a total fail in my book. Yeah, the stunt without the message. That sounds like uh, maybe that'll be your next podcast uh, after the one you're, you're doing now. Um, we can just point out all the, all the stunts that failed. So speaking of failures, you've seen a lot of campaigns in your day a bunch that worked, a bunch that didn't. Were there any spectacular failures that, that you learned the most from? So I think, and I've avoided this one, but I've watched a lot of other people do it. And I won't name names of companies, but the, but the pattern I try to avoid is a company that does thing A, gets all excited about new thing B, and they come out, and that might be a new product, or it might be a new segment. Like, hey, we're going to focus on mid-market instead of doing enterprise and mid-market, or it might be a new product. And the thing they, they get wrong is they lean too hard into the new thing. I mean, I, I've literally watched marketers stand in, at a user conference in front of a bunch of users who bought their planning product and, and say the future is account reconciliation or financial consolidation. And you know what? That might be the future of the company. Maybe the company has decided their future is going to be in, in account consolidation, which is a totally different job than planning. And, and that's their business. But don't stand up in front of a bunch of customers who bought thing A and tell them you're going to invest all your money in thing B. And it may seem obvious, but people make that mistake all the time because they, because they, they forget about the customer. They think more about their strategy because they've decided, hey, this new initiative is super important to us. And we're going to stand up and talk so much about that new thing that we're going to make them nervous that are we still committed to the existing thing. So that's probably the number one failure pattern. And it's just leaning in too hard to a new thing. And I think Salesforce, by the way, 
is very good at that balance. Sometimes they even they lean in too hard, but 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 never catastrophically. <laughs> but yes, you you want to get excitement about the new thing, but but you never want your customers to go. You know, is Oracle still committed to databases? Is Salesforce still committed to SFA? If your customers are asking those questions, you lean too hard. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you find that when companies do lean too far uh, into a new product or something like that, that it's just alienating? Or do you think that the customers would be upset about the campaign? Or what's the, what's the negative outcome there? Well, the negative outcome is two things. You could actually encourage customer defection. Just imagine, and by the way, this, in my opinion, almost happened at Salesforce, right? Salesforce is itself kind of a a bright, shiny object company, right? They love to talk about the new and exciting thing, and they're very good at that, and they're very good at getting thought leadership around that. The risk is if you're leaning too far on that, people might just say, do you guys still care about sales, right? And at some point, Salesforce had a, a little uprising from the customers called the true to the core movement where the customers were literally like, there are a bunch of sales ops administrators and salespeople who are just like, you know, we want overlay forecasting, we want account planning, we want territory management, we want all this basic kind of boring sales shit that you guys, you're off building chatter at the time, right? You're off building bright, shiny objects, but you're not giving us that. And and we don't care if you want to build chatter, that's fine with us, just don't not build (laughs) what we want. So Salesforce, to me, walked that line. Obviously, they're a super successful company, so even with the minor skirmish, it didn't hurt them because, by the way, they responded. They listened. They had the co-founder in a room with, with 300 customers talking about this topic. So, so they're fantastic at turning on a dime. But you know, the lesson there, and, and thank God they listened, is, is yes, you will alienate your existing customers either to the point where they kind of create a little protest group uh, or, or, or I've seen other companies where, for example, particularly if they, if they were selling to five verticals and focus on two, and that's the strategy that the new you know, owners brought in, let's just say it was a PE company, they can be super excited about their focus on those two markets, but they can't go tell everyone yeah, totally. <laughs> because then customers, the other three are like, so you're abandoning us. And it's like, yeah, it's terrible. That's a great, that's a, that's a great one. The Salesforce example reminded me of, of when they launched Einstein and they did that pretty deftly, I think, because Einstein wasn't a product. It was in the products, right? So they're announcing this big thing. And everyone's like, wait, but there's no product here. So kind of like, what is this? It's like, oh, it's it's in a bunch of the products, right? And so, and obviously that was a, a long-term focus on AI-driven solutions in all of their products. So it was very core to them. But when you launch something like that and you're you're currently a customer of you know three of their products and you're like, yeah, this is great, but how does this help me like right this second? Yeah, I, mean, like, I thought that was a great launch. You could argue it was kind of a, in marketing speak, an, an ingredient branding strategy, yeah. right? Like Intel Inside or, or NutraSuite or any sort of ingredient branding. And I thought it was well done. I thought it was a good strategy. And, and look, the, the highest level message is everything's better with Einstein, whatever. Everything's better with bacon, right? You know, <laughs> everything's better with Einstein. And if you are a little bit of an AI skeptic, well, great, you don't have to use it, right? So, and, but it'll be there, right? My, my message would have been use it now, great don't want to use it now, great. But at some point, we think you're going to want to use this and, and it will be kind of battle-hardened and in use and out there. So I, I thought that was a great example of a good launch where they they were thinking about their existing customers and not just about their own strategy when they took it out. What are some other examples of some campaigns that over the years that you were, uh, you were part of that worked really well? I think one campaign we did well at Host Analytics was uh, kind of a connected planning campaign where basically the, the business problem we realized was that finance departments were kind of cut off from sales departments. And we had been selling to finance departments, 
And then there was an opportunity to kind of tie those two plans together because both sides suffer when, you know, sales ops has their own financial plan that's separate from the finance financial plan. And one of the, we, we did a couple things, right? One was, one was we were able to phrase the whole thing with one question, which is, can you tell the EPS impact of a change in your sales productivity model? And that one question, that's it. That's the problem. So I thought that was a really good tactic. So you could walk in, and my stump speech became to walk into a room full of CFOs and ask that question and say, I have one simple question for you. Can you tell the impact on EPS, earnings per share, which is what you're paid to manage, right? Your, your job is to talk every quarter to Wall Street about EPS. And if your sales team changes the sales model, changes sales productivity assumptions, can you know the impact? Or do people have to start mailing spreadsheets around and get back to you in four days? And if you can't answer that question, then you should get a planning system that ties the two together. That idea worked out well for us. It was, it was all hooked around one simple notion. It came with a product as well. So when I think of campaigns, I'm thinking more strategic campaign, not just a marketing campaign. But like the whole idea was we think there's money to be made by pointing out this problem, framing it around a simple question, and then going to CFOs. Because the other thing is you have to pick who you're going to talk to, right? Very important part of marketing. Because there is a message for the CRO as well. It's just a different message. The CRO doesn't care about EPS. Right, so so if you took that same message and put it in front of a room of CROs, that that wouldn't work so well because they're like, I don't care. That's that's the CFO's job. So that was one. I think the other one, you know, I always liked the social enterprise campaign at Salesforce when I was there, because for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you why I liked it. First, it was built on the back of like a 60k Twitter connector done by like Romanian contractors, <laughs> like literally, like that's how it all started. We had no money. And we're off busy doing our roadmap. And somebody says, we should be able to connect to Twitter for a customer service system, which at the time was completely not obvious. I'm like, why would you ever want to connect to Twitter? And they're like, so we can get cases. So if somebody's complaining about us vocally on social media, we can notice it. And then we can automatically generate a case. And a contact center agent can either reach out back over Twitter, or if we know who it is, call them and say, hey, sorry to hear you're upset. And I was like, well, that's cool. And if you want to show we're connected to social media, and this is the brilliance of the style of marketing for like literally 60K in R&D, because a lot of companies try to do this with 0K in R&D, and it doesn't work, right? There has to be product at the center of the pearl of the oyster, right? But for a very low price connector, we were able to tie Twitter to a, a, a case management system and a call center and customer support operation. And now all of a sudden, it was like, hey, what are you doing about social media? Is your enterprise, are you listening to your customers on social media? And you could just layer and layer this bigger message that it eventually became the social enterprise. And Salesforce was uh, you know, evangelizing that all enterprises should be social. We redid the UI to have kind of a feed interface. And that all started with a teeny little idea that became a very effective marketing campaign. And the thing that's, that I, I find so interesting about Salesforce, and even the work Benioff did at Oracle, was th- that the product themselves were not terribly successful. Like, like Chatter came from that as well. Chatter was offspring of that. Chatter is not a particularly successful product in my mind. Right? They, they later bought Slack uh, to, to arguably compensate for that. And it didn't matter, right? Because what mattered was this ability to understand we make our money selling sales and service automation. That's where, that's where we make our money. But we sell a vision to the customer, right? I would say market vision while selling product is actually the way I say it. So we market a vision to the customer that gets them excited about where we're going, right? Because when you buy these apps, you're not just buying what's on the truck today, right? We sell what's on the truck, but they buy into this broader vision. 
And, and if you keep pinning that vision, if that vision is right, it doesn't actually matter if that product works or not because you're selling what's on the truck, which is sales and service. And Salesforce has done that phenomenally well. And it, it's in my mind, it's the key to how they stay a thought leader and have a really big successful business because they, they do both. And it's, it's a beautiful trick. Oracle did the same thing, whatever it's worth. So, yeah, right. Was it market vision? Oh, the soundbite would be kind of selling product while marketing vision or, or, or market vision, sell what's on the truck, right? It, it's the same idea, <laughs> right? Because sometimes people want to sell what's not on the truck and that like that's a revenue recognition problem and a contractual problem and you bury your R&D. Like, I'm not saying to sell futures, right? I want you to sell what's on the truck. Like, I, I want the purchase orders to come in with products that we can ship today. But I will assure you, and Dan Darcy knows this because he built them all, every demo ever shown at Dreamforce was probably three years minimum away from being a product. Right. I mean, that, that, that encapsulates it. Right. We're going to show you what the future looks like. And no, you can't order this. And, and you probably won't be able to order this for about three years. But this is where we're going. And again, the same formula, market vision, sell product. Love it. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello. You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about tactics that helped you win. You know, we normally ask each guest, what are the three most uncuttable budget items? But you're not sitting there with a with a billion dollar budget these days. But I'm curious, like, what do you think are the uncuttable budget items today? Where is Where are we headed for the channels and tactics that are helping people win? Sure. So, so for enterprise software, right, which is where I live, I think of three things. One, digital, obviously, for, for all the reasons. And, and, and COVID only made digital even you know more uncuttable, if that was possible. The next one would be webinars. I'm a big believer in education. Enterprise software, look, it's either going to be a PLG model, right? Product-led growth, where the product is the marketing, and you're trying to get the product in people's hands, so they try it and use it. That's great. Or it's going to be a more traditional approach, which is convince somebody that they need to they need to try this thing, all right? And, and, and to a certain extent, whether the trial is a formal sales-driven thing or an informal download thing, doesn't matter. But but I need to convince you, right? Because never forget that trying a product is a cost, right? It takes time to go get up and running and trying something. So either way, you're, you're asking me to invest. So I need to be convinced to make that investment. Yeah, that's where I think webinars come in. I'm a huge believer that every company should basically have a standing weekly live webinar. And that's where you tell your stump speech. And you can build derivations of it. You can build vertical versions. You can build product-focused versions. But in my opinion, you should be really good at telling your story that makes somebody want to take the next step, whether that next step is a download and trying the product or it's a conversation with a salesperson. I don't actually care. But, but I need to give you a reason to want to do that. So I think that tactic is super important. I'll call it the webinar in general or the weekly webinar, the weekly educational webinar. And you'd be surprised how many companies don't have it. And not only they don't have it, but if you said, show me the content you'd presented it, they don't have that either. And that's terrifying. So, I'm like, and so, so the other good reason to do one is that it forces you, like you don't have an official standard stump speech. Well, no, because we just did a launch. I've got a deck for this launch and I've got a deck for this. And right, I've got a deck for this campaign we did. But, but, but I have all these decks, but none of them are actually like, what's our stump speech, our, our you know, Company name 101. Here's what we do. Here's why we do it. Here's what we do it for. Here are the benefits of doing it. Here are the alternatives. And here's why you should take the next step. And that sort of education is super important. 
The last tactic I'd say is uncuttable, and this one may be more of a surprise, but especially if you're selling anything where IT is involved, either because you're selling to IT or even if IT is an approval role, is analyst relations. And I think analyst relations is probably the most misunderstood, underinvested, angst-generating department in all of marketing, and uh, and it should be uncuttable, particularly in enterprise software. I don't care if you like it, you need to be good at analyst relations. So so suck it up (laughs) and go get good at it because it has a massive, massive impact on your business. And by the way, IT is more involved than you might think because a lot of people might say, oh, I'm selling directly to an end user. At Host Analytics, we sold to, to VPs of financial planning and analysis. But a lot of them, right, a lot of them would have to go to IT to get approval. And by the way, in host position, because we were kind of uh, in the top three in the market, but not necessarily in number one or two, depending on what you're looking for, they would actually refer us into lots of deals because people would call up and say, hey, I'm looking at Anna plan to do sales planning and financial planning. And who else should I look at? And Gartner would be like, oh, I'll take a look at host. Or I'm looking at adaptive insights to do you know, planning, financial planning for a small business. Who else should I look at? Host. So, so they can be a source of leads. They can blow your deals up when you're trying to get veto approval, basically, right? Hey, is it safe to do business with these guys? So I think analyst relations is, is both misunderstood and, and absolutely uncuttable. I literally had a CMO call me in the last week saying, I'm not sure I want to renew our Gartner thing. We have trouble working with them. I'm like, ooh, that's a, that's, if you're having trouble with Gartner, the, the stupidest thing you can do is, is not renew the contract. You want to renew that, and we want to build a, we want to build a plan for how we get better at working with them. So two things on that. Number one, what stage do you think that people should focus? And number two, doesn't everybody kind of have trouble with Gartner a little bit? Isn't that like part of the thing? It's like everybody knows that it's not the most easy relationship. But like you said, if you just ignore it, then it's way worse than if you actually put the effort in. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a couple of different levels. So first, yeah, everyone has trouble with it. It's hard. Analyst relations is hard. If we go up to kind of Maslow pyramid, you know, the, the level zero is ignore it, which I think we could quickly agree is a really bad idea. Level one is the one I worry about the most, which is just I'll call it the lip service level. There's an AR person or contractor. They run a program. They tier the analysts in some groupings. So we've got tier A or tier B or tier C, and you know, we, we do a little bit more with the A people and the B people and the C people. But when we show, but we don't do SAS days, strategic analysis days, as Gartner calls them. So we don't do that. We don't actively manage our inquiries. We kind of just write the check for the subscription. Maybe once in a while we call, but that's it. Oh, oh when we're doing a launch, we'll go offer them a briefing. And that's kind of the, what I call the baseline. And I think the baseline is just a terrible place to live. So I set a super high bar on AR. I mean, literally, my, my, my personal bar for AR is for the lead analyst in the category provided there's enough natural simpatico that we kind of get along anyway, I want to be friends with them and talking to them 10 years later. I still talk to the analyst who covered me at Business Objects in the 1990s. We're still friends, (laughs) right? Um, That's the benchmark. Like you want to, like after you've retired, are you still in contact with that person as a friend? That's the relationship you want to build. It's not, you want them to give you a nice dot on the quadrant. So you need to set a very high bar and you need to, basically to me, the key is you need to do all the basics. You need to be sure you're doing SAS days and or you need to do stuff together, like events or SAS days or have them at your kickoff or whatever. And then on top of that, you need to try and build relationship. And you do that by picking people who are naturally compatible and kind of pairing them, 
right? So I, I like food, wine, and fancy dinners. So we'll find you know the most important analyst who likes food, wine, and fancy dinners, and we'll go have a great time. Somebody else likes golf, great. Pair, pair those guys together. Uh, pair, pair the other people together. But kind of have like in scuba diving a buddy program where you take the top analysts and say, let's buddy them up with executives. And your job is to build a real lasting relationship with that person because we really want to understand. The other bar I'd put this one in is if you don't understand their internal politics, then you don't know anything, right? Because when you get those relationships, they're like, oh, well, this guy's trying to do that. They're trying to split the quadrant in two. And this person wants to rename the category that. If you don't know the inside baseball, you're not playing, right? Like you're either on the inside or you're on the outside. And when you go in kind of both feet in, by the way, part of going both feet in, the CEO shows up at these briefings and meetings. Right, you're not just sending a, a product manager. No offense to product managers, but the analyst is going to judge how important you think they are by who you send, right? And if you send an AR person and two product managers, and you never see the CMO, never see the the CRO, never see the the, the head of sales, that 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 says de facto you're not important. So there, there's a lot to unpack there. We could do a whole thing on AR, but uh, uncuttable. Yes, we might need to. That's that was killer stuff. And what stage do you think? I think it starts early. I mean, here's the good news. Analysts love startups because you're new. Like their job is to know more than anybody else. So if you're a startup that has credible founders, credible investors, they definitely they'll make time for you because it's kind of their job to know. So I think it starts almost at inception and it's done probably by the founder CEO, the, the founding head of marketing or the founding head of product. You say, hey, we're doing some cool stuff. I want to tell you about it. And that's where it all begins. I think, you know, you probably bring on an AR contractor, I don't know, 10 million, 20 million. It depends a lot on what category you're in, what your ASP is, if you're PLG or not. I mean, there's a lot of variables here, but even PLG companies, you know, Slack being a great example, they end up doing big deals. As soon as you become infrastructure, as soon as you want to buy one for everybody, IT is going to be involved, right? You might have gotten in the door through PLG or open source, or I'm not even sure how you get in the door. It doesn't matter. But, but as soon as you're going to hit radar and be like, oh, this is a strategic system for the company. This is going to be a standard for the company. There's a, there's a department whose job it is to set those standards, and it's called IT. So and, and, and IT, I mean, Gartner is obviously the bellwether for, for IT. Yeah, I mean, we work with a lot of companies, obviously a lot of software companies um, and B2B companies that we create podcasts for. And so, I mean, every single person is like, they want IT to know who they are for a fact. Like if you're a software company, you want that. And again, like IT might think about your company for, you know, two and a half minutes every year, but you want them to know who you are. Absolutely. And and, and to your point, they're a very hard target to hit because they're they're heavily over marketed, right? Like like every marketer in the world is trying to hit them. So so and by the way, which is one of the reasons they rely on analysts. And I've talked a lot about Gartner, but I'm also a huge believer in boutiques and independence you'll find literally one-person consultancies where that person has a book and a following and, you know, uh, and people will, will go to their webinars and, and read their book and need their help. Why does the world need analysts? For the same reason, it's going to say a little bit for movie critics because before you spend, you know, before you spend you know, a whole evening of your time and a lot of money to go to a movie, you know, why, why not read a movie review? It's a little bit the same thing with enterprise software. But the other is just because it's confusing. And there's a lot happening. It's confusing. And you want somebody to help sort it out for you who kind of doesn't have skin in the game. And that's the beauty. So what about things like G2 and, and all those sort of things, which play a huge part into that, but aren't traditionally AR? Yeah, reviews. I'm a big believer in, in those. I use G2 a lot myself. I think it's a great product. And I think marketers should pay attention to it. I mean, particularly if you're focused on SMB or mid-market, right, where they don't have the money to go to Gartner, 
Gartner's expensive. I mean, the, the bad news is they're expensive. The good news is you can cover a lot of ground because they have a lot of leverage. Not everybody can afford them. So I do believe kind of your you might make your shortlist off G2, right? You, you may begin your evaluation by just going to G2 or doing some Google searches where you talk about content marketing in a minute if you want to. So I think review sites are very important and they're often kind of between the cracks, in my opinion. I'm not super deep in this, but I've seen marketing departments where you say, who owns reviews? Oh, for sure. You know, everyone kind of points yeah. to a different, <laughs> well, that's PR, that's AR, that's product, that's, a, a, that's content marketing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, who, who owns these? Um, so I think they're, they're super important. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, competitors, or anyone else. Dave, had you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Uh, Yeah, I have, yes. Mul- multiple. <laughs> <laughs> Anything, uh, any any knockdown dragouts uh, worth repeating, or should we let all the innocents stay innocent? I'll just say the pattern. The pattern I have, which is something to avoid, to be frank, is ironically for a marketing person who, when I'm doing my job, spends an enormous amount of time thinking how what I'm going to say is going to land on the audience. Internally, I would sometimes forget that. So. One of the biggest dust-ups I had is at one point I just said, you know, and to me, this was just a plain statement of fact. It's like everybody knows the sales database is a piece of shit because it was. <laughs> and of course, I didn't think how that was going to land on the owner of the sales order database, right, who, who, who had like, you know, a, a conniption over it. And unfortunately, that was the CFO at the time. So it was kind of a big dust-up. But yeah, so the thing I think that can be funny and the advice would be if you want to avoid these dust-ups, put as much energy when you're inside the company and working with your peers to thinking of, you know, we do it for a living outside the company. We're always like, how's this going to land? How's it, if I say this, what are they going to hear? How are they going to feel? We do that. And just for whatever reason, I would always turn that off internally. Um, and, and the advice is keep it on because, because uh, the, the other trick I built on that one as a CEO is whenever I gave a speech, I, I, you know, when I was early in the job, I didn't barely piss off some department. <laughs> like, you left finance out, or you forgot HR, or how do you think we felt about that? So I would literally run the speech in my head, I'm an engineer, how do I react? I'm a finance person, how do I react? I'm a product person, how do I react? And if you could just take the company, put them into seven groups, go through one at a time, uh, and it was a great way to, to avoid kind of inadvertently offending people. That's great, I love it. All right, let's get to our final segment, Quick Hits. <laughs> These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Our good friends at Qualified, they've been with us since the first episode of the show. We love them dearly. Go to Qualified to learn more. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Dave, are you ready? I am. Number one, what do you do for fun? Uh, fly fish and hike and go to Grateful Dead concerts, I should say. <laughs> where, do you, where do you like, uh, where's your favorite fly fishing spot? Uh, I have a couple. I'd say McLeod River is a popular one for me. I like the Sacramento River is good. Um, I go to Montana once in a while as well. I'm, I'm starting up in Oregon now. so Love it. Now, what's the longitude and the latitude where you've caught the most fish? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no idea. Just trying to steal some fishing spots from you. Um, is there one piece of advice that you would give to a first-time CMO to try to figure out their marketing strategy? Yeah, it, it would be... Figure out your situation. Strategy is a function of situation. And the hard part is figuring out the situation. 
And that is the thing that everybody misses. Given a situation, a strategy is relatively obvious, but you will find, I mean, this, this goes back to another story, but I actually hired the Chasm Group, Jeffrey Moore, uh, long ago to do a strategy offsite. And this is a business object. We're a super successful company. And we spent three days arguing about where we were on his curve. <laughs> and that was how I learned. I was like, we, we, the, the offsite was a total failure. We, we accomplished nothing. Um, and I was like, holy cow, these, these are 10 people I've worked with for five years at that point. We've all worked together building this company. And when you sit down and say, here's a simple curve, where are we? We can't agree after three days of arguing. And that was just a huge lesson for me that, wow. I mean, it was probably in business school. I was like, hey, I've noticed that strategy is a function of situation. So if you get situation, you can do strategy. And then I realized that through, the, through that offsite that, wow, getting agreement on situation is really hard. And by the way, I think the answer on how to get that today, everybody runs to Salesforce to understand their situation. And that's great. But that is actually nasal navel gazing, right? It's navel gazing to look at Salesforce because it's showing us only that part of the market that we found. So the thing I remind first-time CMOs today, do market research. Do it the old school way as well as analyzing the heck out of Salesforce because Salesforce only shows you what you found. And let's complement that with some market research. And that's the single biggest piece of advice I give to both CMOs and CEOs is let's, let's start with a list of questions we want the answer to to figure out our situation. Let's go try to answer those questions in Salesforce and let's run some market research as well. Yeah, our pal uh, Jennifer Johnson said on the show that you need to be the chief market officer. And I always I always love that. Oh, I love that. Great. Yeah, you got to understand the whole market. Otherwise, otherwise uh, like you said, you're just just navel gazing. Any favorite books that you're reading? Any, any uh, movies you're watching or TV shows or podcasts you're listening to? I'm reading Sapiens, which is a good book. Um, I'm also reading a book. I think it's called The Build Gap. It's about product management. I'm, I'm running a product management uh, clubhouse room, and therefore I'm kind of brushing up my product management skills. I can't remember. I think it's called The Build Gap. I've been reading that. I think I have one other one I'm in the middle of. Uh, I can't remember right now, but th- those are those are good. You jumped on my next plug. I was going to say that you have a clubhouse Thursdays at 8 o'clock a.m. Pacific called the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, and uh, I haven't attended, but... 8 a.m. is a little early for me, so I'll try to make it, though. Maybe I'll catch up on on the podcast recordings. Well, we'd love to have you. Um, the other book I'm reading is Ask Your Developer by Jeff Lawson. I, I knew it was there. The two books that are currently open are The Build Trap and Ask Your Developer. I was also reading some Vonnegut, but that's kind of weird. Speaking of the great the great marketing campaigns, I love Ask Your Developer. That's one of my favorites for, for software. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, the clubhouse room, by the way, to, to speak about the clubhouse room. Yeah, we're doing it. It's every Thursday morning. It's Thomas Otter, who is an ex-Gartner analyst, ex-Success Factors and SAP executive based in Germany. So Thomas and I do it. It's only a breakfast for me. It's more like dinner for him. But we have guests on and we talk about product with people who have been product management leaders, product GMs, several people who've transitioned into venture capital, and uh, we also release it as a podcast as well. So we record the sessions and put them up. And it's called the SaaS Product Power Breakfast. You can get it on Apple Podcasts. And uh, we'd love to have you. Yeah, we're going to link it up in the show notes. Highly uh, recommend everybody check it out. And the Kel blog, of course. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. This has been awesome. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I don't think so. I mean, just... Uh, Stay aligned, align with sales. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key. <laughs> so, all right. Well, it was great talking to you. Awesome. Thanks again, and uh, and we'll talk soon. Hey, glad we got to do this. It took a while, but it was fun. 
Mangen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.